from Sky News on the right to the ABC on the left. The Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. On the right of that line lies an evil empire of conservative Christians who deny climate change but believe in trickle-down economics. On the left lies a misguided and confused rabble who are supposed to help the working man but instead fight amongst themselves over identities. Only the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast takes the uncomfortable position of sitting astride the Iron Curtain to take aim at both sides. Only this podcast, and perhaps the bullshit filter, can explain the dire threats facing our civilization. I only wish that they could have traveled back in time to when I was conducting the war effort. With the benefit of their wise counsel, the war would have ended three years earlier. I would not have lost the election, and I would have invested heavily in technology stocks. <laughs> in any event, I implore you to listen to this very fine podcast. It is your duty. Well, as I was saying, it was nice to have a two-week break and I could get used to it, and so <laughs> we'll see what happens. But um, I'm Trevor, a.k.a. The Iron Fist. This is a podcast. We talk about news and politics, sex and religion. With me, as always, is Paul, the 12th man. Greetings, Earthlings. Shay, yet to have a pseudonym or alias, Shay. Hello. Joe, the tech guy. Evening, all. We're going to talk about um, politics. We're going to talk about footballers performing badly. We've got... Gender issues, we've got Scientology, we've got Amanda Stoker, a fair bit about her, we've got American wokeness getting into French society, we've got all sorts of things to talk about, so let's just get into it. So, um, of course, with all this talk about gender issues, it hasn't gone down well with um, for Scott Morrison. He's obviously taken a hit, he's seen as not performing well in this regard, and latest essential poll showed... Approval rating for Scott Morrison had dropped by 5% and disapproval rating had increased by 6%. And um, basically, when you look at the breakdown, it was unsurprisingly women who had, uh, in terms of approval, men were previously approving him 65% and they still are 65% according to this poll whereas women approval of Scott Morrison was 59% and it dropped to 49%. So no surprise. Well, yes, on behalf some. of men. <laughs> do you want to explain that one, Trevor? Good point. Good point, Joe. Well, you see, I have low expectations. <laughs> but you're right. Men's attitude to Scott Morrison in terms of approval did not budge a percentage oh. point, but for women dropped 10%. Paul, do you find that... Surprising, unsurprising, matches your expectations. Just I didn't have any expectations. Right. Okay. <laughs> I don't it's, know. It, I don't know what yeah, to make of it, to it, be honest. It basically says that for all the hoo-ha that's gone on over the last three or four weeks with this gender issues, essentially men couldn't give a rat's in terms of their approval 
of Scott Morrison, they think he's doing okay. And women think quite differently. Mm. In summary. What's the oh, female take on it? I would have thought a few more men that... would have been disappointed by his performance. Yeah. I would have thought. Is it that possibly they think that his mm. handling of this doesn't directly impact them and their everyday life? Is that the... It's just do you approve or disapprove of the job Scott Morrison is doing, doing as Prime Minister? I would have thought on behalf of all of Australians, how's he going? And uh, there we go. That's interesting, I think, mm. that um, it basically showed men thought, fine, women um, mm. were uh, less than fine with it. So that was interesting. Then there was a news poll came out, and that was in The Australian. I've extracted bits from that. So there's a really big chart here, which you can't even see, guys, because the numbers are so small on this one. But I've broken it down into little bits. But um, in terms of the two-party preferred, and we're looking at – they've broken it down into um, two-party preferred. Let me just give you the basic figure. At the moment, if there was an election, two-party two preferred, Labor would get 51% and the Coalition 49 so Labor ahead by two percentage points, apparently. But if you then break it down by gender, age, education, income levels, and religious belief, you get some interesting breakdowns of this uh, two-party preferred um, information. So when it comes to gender, though, for voting for the parties, there's absolutely very little difference. Uh, uh, the, the coalition's the top line there, guys, and the um, Labor is the second line. So uh, 49-51 matches perfectly male and female. In terms of age groups, uh, heavily slanted for Labor in the younger age groups, heavily slanted to the coalition in the older age groups. No surprise there. 64% in the 18-34 to 34, uh, would vote Labor. 62% in the 65-plus would vote coalition. And then there's a gradual movement between those. So um, no surprise. In terms of education levels, whether you've got a uh, tertiary, not a tertiary, TAFE, it's kind of all the same. And that's interesting here in Australia. I know I've been reading stuff about what happened with Trump and, and the sort of backlash against the liberal elite and the Rust Belt and the... And really, one of the really defining features of people who voted for Trump or people who voted for Brexit was education. It was a big disparity between people. Why so, did you bring Brexit into it? Because both issues were the same. That there was uh, people who were well-educated with university degrees uh, significantly voted oh, to remain, yeah. whereas... The uh, argument is the left mm. political parties have lost touch with working class mm -hmm. and are more concerned with minorities yep. which a white lower class person doesn't necessarily care so much about they're more concerned about their working conditions and they were also quite resentful what i've been reading of how they've been perceived that they have oh, I see, are, yeah. are perceived that they're not valued in a community and this as, was their as means of clinton's uh, deplorables yes, exactly the basket of deplorables and, sums it up precisely. And, and, and a lot of British people, mm. Remainers, were referring to Brexiteers as Racist. xenophobic, yeah. yes. ignorant rabble, yes. basically, weren't they? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so when you look at those two issues, there's often quite a disparity in opinion based on education. But when it comes to our Labor and our coalition voting, 
it really doesn't seem to be any difference significantly to speak of in terms of this poll. Income levels is another one. If you are on over 150000 a year, you're very likely to vote coalition. Mm. But otherwise, not much difference amongst the, the uh, income groups. Why and did you say before that you weren't surprised that older people tend to vote coalition and younger people tend to vote Labor? I was curious as to your reasoning. That just matches my perception of how the vote, how people vote. Really? Hmm. You don't think older people? Revolution tends to be a younger person. There's a lot of old working class people who I assume would generally vote Labor. Um, and uh, a lot of young affluent people who might thirty-eight percent. Generally speaking, though, most. It's a generalisation, but as you get older, you get wealthier, particularly if you've owned property. So people who have acquired property during their lives and are getting towards the end of their working lives, on the whole, generally speaking, will be wealthier than younger people who are starting off. So there are always exceptions, and and those who hold a lot of wealth, or more than average, would normally vote for the coalition because they think that they're the party that will look after them hanging on to that wealth. So, so yeah, when it comes to income, super wealthy, sort of 150, well, not super wealthy, but 150 plus a year, definitely likely to vote coalition. Otherwise, the other income levels, pretty even, not a lot of difference. Um, Here's one, though, that's quite a big difference. They had um, Christians, Mm. 56% would vote for the coalition as to 44%. Um, would vote for Labor. So quite a heavy bias for Christians. And yet still 44% would vote Labor. Indeed. Mm. But let's look at some other ones. When it comes... So that was two-party preferred. So basically, based on two-party preferred, who are you going to vote for? Which party? If you're old and you're rich and you're Christian, you'll be voting coalition. Pretty much sums up a coalition voter. Generalising, I know, but there we go. It's a very <laughs> gross generalisation, I have to say. Yeah, but I'm picking out the highlights. Okay. Yeah. Um, Morrison's performance, how has Morrison performed? And what we find there is a really interesting one with the Christian votes. If you're Christian, 73% of Christians think Morrison has performed well, as opposed to... Uh, well, because he's all about 20... religious freedom. Yeah. So... Um, so, yeah, big big numbers there for Morrison in terms of uh, the Christian vote. He's definitely picked those up. So and the poll says is mm. determining Morrison's performance or who you prefer? What you think of Morrison's performance, okay. yeah. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. So yep. Christians it's, like him. It's mm. probably unsurprising, isn't it, yeah. that Christians would mm. prefer someone who is very publicly a practising Christian, mm. whereas Albanese... Mm. I think he occasionally says sort of, um, you know, pious things that sort of to, to try and not alienate religious people, whether or not he's actually a religious believer. I have no mm. clear idea, do you? So, so, no. Yeah. Um, so, I know he's divorced. Mm. Um, so, so with, so with Morrison, 73% approve, 23% disapprove. When it comes to Albanese and the Christians, 41% approve of him and 44 are dissatisfied. Mm. So even though he is an Anglican, mm. 
and who said, I was raised on three great faiths, the South Sydney Rugby Club, Labor Party, and maybe it was Catholic Church, one of the churches. Like, he's he's full on. Like, he's mm. he's not... You don't, he's, you don't think he's just making the right sounds no, to no, please the this, voters? No, no. This has been him all of his life. He's a staunch Christian. Really? Yes. He I, said that the three great believe. faiths of his life were... South Sydney Football Club, the Labor Party, and I forget if it was Anglicans or but, Catholics. But, one but okay, other. maybe he's being very selective. You know, mm. if he if you use the word faith, mm. you're not going to talk about you know loving t- to read or go bushwalking. You know mm. what I mean? Mm. Faith specifically applies to religion, and in a sense, membership of a, a Labor movement mm. like the Labor Party. Some people would see that as akin to almost a religion. Look, I see him and as... And football, for that matter. I see him as overtly Christian, oh. and I just think that he's normal overt, whereas Morrison is so mm. off the scale <laughs> that he's blowing, he's blowing Albanese off the park when it comes to getting the Christian vote. That's and kind yet, of how, how I see times? it. He's traditional Christian. How many mm. times do you actually hear Morrison talking about religion? It's not that frequent, really. Most of the time he just talks about politics and normal stuff. Most of the time. So but, but more often... Why do you say he's off the scale? Well, because compared to what would be normal, he's far more overt than any other um, prime minister about well, his faith. So while it still might be less than 15% of what he's talking about because he talks about infrastructure and announcements about COVID and all the rest of it. I would say less than 1% of but, what he talks but, about, but, not 15 But whatever it might be, he can. I can still say he's overt if it's compared to what is normal. He doesn't have to talk about it 50% of the time. That would be ridiculous. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of You don't other think he's prim- overtly Christian of in course public way? Of course he's overtly Christian. But what I, I'm, I'm how, just challenging... How many others have invited the press in to see him worship at church? Yeah, look, I'm not denying that he's overtly Christian. I'm just saying that I think you tend to exaggerate a little bit. Because but, but I'm saying he's overtly Christian. So where am I? And you're well, saying you he is. Well, 15% of no, what no, no, he talks no, about. No, I didn't say 15%. Yes, you did. No, I said it, it, it doesn't matter what the percentage is, he doesn't have to speak about it all the time to and be that overt. that's my point. He doesn't speak about it all but the time. But you've agreed with me that he's overt. But that's not to say he and speaks I'm about it And I'm saying he's overt. We're agreeing that he is overtly Christian. Yeah, I just think you... And you think I'm exaggerating. I think you exaggerate his but we both religiosity agree, on the job. But we both agree that he's overtly oh, Christian. Oh, absolutely, because we've, we've all seen... You know, video of him in church. So when I say he's overtly Christian, I'm exaggerating. But when his... you say he's overtly Christian, he's no, not, I'm, you're I'm, not exaggerating. Well, if if you say you, you're pretty convinced Albanese is a Christian, yes, um, I've never seen Albanese, you know, say anything. You haven't so seen him do overtly. Easter yes. messages or Christmas yeah. messages, but or it, which is something that Scott yeah. Morrison has taken on. He takes mm. on saying hopes and prayers. Yes, but when at the, the midst same, of a disaster, at the so same he time, does refer to it more, like possibly more overtly. A lot of public figures use the term hopes and prayers. I've I can only recall once or twice when he's been actually speaking in his. His um in his role as prime minister, talking about his religion. That was his his opening speech, wasn't it? When he was it when he first came into the parliament, or when he first became prime minister, 
he said something about his his faith being part of his, you know. You, you can right. only remember him talking about his faith once or twice. Yes. Well, I can assure you he's talked about it much more than that. Yeah. Well, I'd like to see that on record, but anyway, I, I just think you, you o- think, overplay if, his if religiosity. You, if you think he's bit. only spoken about it once or twice, then you shouldn't be thinking he's overt in his Christianity. Why not? Because once or twice wouldn't be overt. Oh, because I've seen the videos of him in church where, as, as Joe said, he invited cameras in to, to witness him practising <laughs> his faith. But that was his time. You know, that was his private, personal time. It wasn't him as Prime Minister so much. Anthony Albanese has said he was raised with three great faiths, the Catholic Church, the South Sydney Football Club and Labor. There you go. There That's the way it was described. Anyway, I'll maintain that... Uh, Scott Morrison is one of the most overt Christians we've seen and that in politics and that the public, because 73% of Christians think he's doing a great job, <laughs> probably think the same. Look, I'm sure it counts for something in the minds of Christian voters. Mm. I don't doubt that is true. Yeah. Dire Straits says, I'm not getting your point, Trevor. At least Albo is not making it his image. Uh, well, my point is that ScoMo has, and it's been successful in terms of the Christian vote. That's my point. So, um, all right. Uh, what else have we got here? What else? Actually, what does Bronwyn say? Um, being overtly religious doesn't necessarily translate into political conservatism. Dan Andrews is a practicing Catholic and goes to church most Sundays, but he ignores Catholic teachings on social issues and leads a very progressive government. There we go. That's another opinion. Mm. Um, gender quotas. To what extent do you support or oppose political parties setting gender quotas when selecting candidates to achieve a representative number of women in Parliament? And they asked Australians in this poll and supporting the idea, uh, 48%. Opposing the idea, 36%. Shay, what do you think about gender quotas for political parties when selecting candidates? I think it's. I think it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. I think that um, it's certainly worked at the Labor Party. I think that. Um, um, what was I going to say when I was thinking about this? I was thinking about this little experiment mm-hmm. as uh, having me here. The podcast, yes, exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So we've increased the quota. Yes, have we increased the value? <laughs> I think we have. Do you? But. Uh, so, see, see, I don't know because it's if I'm if I am a smiling observer, then perhaps it is tokenism. Yeah. But if I am actually contributing, yeah. then I am adding value. Yeah, well, yeah, you're not a smiling so, observer because <laughs> I said I said I'm not giving you that nickname. No, you're far from I didn't, smiling. So, I didn't. So it does work. Like this is a great opportunity. This little experiment is a great opportunity for me. Yes. And um, but I don't know how the audience is responding. Yeah. But certainly when I look at it at a bigger picture with the Labor Party, we have like or they have really like strong performing women there. It's not a case of it being mm-hmm. tokenism. We have mm-hmm. really strong female leadership there. So mm-hmm. I think it, I think quotas does work. Mm-hmm. For political parties. Yep. For political parties and mm-hmm. it remains to be things. seen if it'll work for a podcast. <laughs> 
Was she selected on the basis of the fact that she's a woman? I didn't know that. That was my only um, qualification. That was the only requirement. I'm willing to stand in front of a microphone. True. I I think it was more than that, Shay. No, no, but I... No. Look, well... But we wouldn't have have accepted just any female. Of course not. Yes, you would have. No. Yes, you have. I really don't think so. but I was... You might not have had her back. But you would have you would have yeah. accepted her for the first one, right? <laughs> no, well, no, there would be some vetting of some sort. I already knew you from the from the, our conversation, mm. so you'd, you'd been vetted in that respect. Okay, okay. But I was determined to have a female voice, mm. so I was not wanting a male, no matter how good the male voice would have been, mm. would have mm. been a PhD in news and politics and sex and religion, and I would have said, sorry, just not the right time mm. um, because I felt that it's good to have a female voice, not just for perspective from a female point of view, but it's also, this is an audio format, and just a female voice as opposed to blokes talking gives the whole thing a different vibe. Mm. And I was interviewed by the lady from Compass to do with stuff with the News Temple of Satan and said something about the podcast. She said, oh, yeah, I've listened to it. It's pretty good. She said, it's a bit blokey, but it's pretty good. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's probably a fair comment like, mm. because mm. it was quite – it is quite blokey when you've got four blokes. Yeah. And so I thought, that's a fair comment. And so that added to my impetus to say, well, I'm going to put a quota on, in a sense, yes. this podcast. And previously I've been dead set against quotas. Mm. If you'd have asked me – Four or five years ago, I would have said, you know, everything should be a meritocracy, basically, mm. and mm. quotas shouldn't come into it. But I'm, I'm gradually shifting on some issues, on some jobs and in some situations. So before we go on, I've been reading a book which is called uh, The Tyranny of Merit by Michael Sandel. And you have to read this. Not on camera. Some, uh, the Tyranny of Merit, Merit by Michael Sandel. And basically, he's... He goes into, like when I read a book, dear listener, I highlight as I read, and I don't think I've ever highlighted a book as much as this one. Mm. He goes into the tyranny of meritocracy, as in it's really, really hard to create a true meritocracy. And even if you could, it's probably a bad idea. And he goes into the reasons why. So we're definitely going to talk about this book in the future. So Mm. when it comes back to gender quotas, um, so Paul, what do you think? about the question, to what extent do you support or oppose political parties setting gender quotas when selecting candidates to achieve a representative number of women in Parliament? Do you think that's... Do you support that idea or oppose it? I don't support it. Mm-hmm. I'm still in favour of selecting people who have the greatest capacity to you know, fulfil their role as an elected representative in the Parliament. Mm. I don't think what's between their legs should have anything to do with it. Mm. So I think it depends on the job and the organisation to some extent. So I made a comment here, I made a note here. Oh, you Um, mean generally or just in political parties? In terms of the concept. So I think Mm. for political parties it is a good idea to have some sort of quota but I don't think that's necessarily the case for all jobs. And here's where I make the distinction. So um, so I think who really cares if a room full of software coders 
or call centre workers or Amazon pickers or mining engineers is one gender or another. I, I think in those situations, it should just be on merit. merit. Because, but when it comes to an organisation, there are some organisations and some jobs where a broad diversity of gender and age and race might be needed in order for the organisation to fulfil the purpose of the organisation. So if the organisation is to represent a community, it will need people from that community as representatives. So if there's a strange unevenness, it may actually affect the working of the organisation. So jury? So things... Yeah, good point. Um, Jury would be... a a good example, um, police forces, advocacy groups, political parties and podcast panels, I think because you're trying to represent a, a community and you're trying to connect with a range of people and you're trying to draw on a range of perspectives for the roles that you're doing in that thing, I think that's where you could talk about quotas. And I, I might say... Okay, the police force, yes, but maybe not firemen because at the end of the day, you just need big burly guys who can climb a ladder and with a heavy um, Did you hose. Hear that? Big burly guys. There's a physicality <laughs> to it that that means okay, quotas maybe not a good idea for firemen. But there for are fire women too now. You know. There, there are. So, so big um, burly chicks. Yeah. So, but but in terms of police, you a lot of police work is. They have police in schools, they're in the community, and and that's where people need to be able to relate. And mm. so I think it depends on the job. And, and I think when it comes to politics, obviously you're, sp- you're supposed to be representing a community. And if you become totally unrepresentative or really significantly unrepresentative, you tend to not – you tend to cripple the organisation in terms of what it's trying to do. So that's my – that's why I draw the line. I wouldn't have quotas on every job. It would depend on the nature of it along the lines that I've is, described. Is there a difference between an aspiration and a quota? Yes, because an aspiration could be just ignored endlessly. I mean, the, Lib- the Coalition has had an aspiration for 30 years probably for even numbers. But without a quota, it just doesn't happen. That's not to say they're ignoring it. It just might be that... But- more men are attracted to stand for pre-selection in the Liberal Party or the National Party. But, but than the, or it's but, easier. Yeah, but the question was, is there a difference between an aspiration and a quota? And and one is you can fluff around and keep thinking about it for a long time. Right. And mm-hmm. events never change and th- things never change, whereas a quota just forces the change, doesn't it? So. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it- so it may or may not change naturally. You know, I don't. I yeah. don't think you can assume yeah. that it will never change. I'd say it would, but um, if you want to really move things along, um, artificially, and, and, yes, it is artificial. Of course, and, it is. Um, yeah. So well, maybe um, initially it's artificial, but I think as it develops, mm-hmm. um, it starts to um, seem normal. For women to be in politics, and then it's they're the obvious they're mm. the obvious choice and the best candidate versus mm. a quota. Mm. Mm. So, um, so yeah, so that's my sort of thinking on quotas. 
Right. Um, what else have we got here in terms of uh, look? But I'm also starting to think when we looked at the last U.S. presidents that we've had, um, it's almost reached the point where it should be if you drew a lottery and just pick somebody's name out of a hat, you could potentially do better than some of the some of the leaders that we're getting. So um, it's sad, isn't it? Because yeah, I mean, there are yeah. a lot of really smart, you know. Um, ethical people in the United yeah. States, why don't they? any of them become president? Mm. So, so we've almost reached the point where just a random selection might give us a better result. You know, with our current parliament, I'd love to, to run the experiment, but what is there, 150 of them in there in total, senators and House mm. of Reps, something like that, is it? Something like that. how many now. But honestly, if you just grabbed a random sample of 150 Australians and popped them in there, no. you, you, I think you could get... Some better results than what are currently really? happening. Yeah, mm-hmm. people without yeah. agendas, without owing anything to anybody, I, I people think of goodwill. Ju- our jury service mm. um, just proves it. I, yes, the jury service would be a good example. And people with limited experience who have come in from nowhere, who have kind of. He might like, listen to the experts. Yeah, like I would never say I agree with everything, say, Jackie Lambie has said, but she strikes me as sort of an outsider who's come in mm. who least approaches things with a fresh honesty and some of those um or a fresh naivety yeah but some of those and sure but some of those um more independent senators who've gone in from south australia and others i just sort of have a yeah it would be quite refreshing i think some of them turn out to be half reasonable and others turn out to be a waste of space yeah well that's true you will get worse than the current politicians sometimes I mean, I've always thought than Pauline Hanson should not have become a politician. But she came in as a coalition. She actually didn't come in from the outside. Uh, uh, well, she she was a Liberal candidate mm. until they de- disendorsed her. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, she's always been out of a depth, you know, intellectually and knowledge-wise. Mm. <laughs> mm. Okay. <laughs> Moving on... Um, Speaking of gender equality, uh, uh, there's a rugby league women's football star, Nita Maynard, has done her bit for gender equality as a rugby league footballer because she's been charged with assaulting some security guards outside a pub on a Friday night. It's about time a woman footballer, you know, had a bit of biffo with someone, isn't it? Just, It's just, you know, women's rugby league has really come a long way when it's reached this <laughs> stage of gender equality. That's where we were getting. That's where we were getting to with this one. When you read this, Shay, did did this story bring a tear to your eye? No, I was like, I just immediately thought it's so funny how people get so gleeful about women behaving badly. Well, they do the same with the men. I mean, let's let's be fair. mm, Any mm. you know professional foot male footballer. Gets into trouble, he's in the in news. news. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, what about that politician who got knocked out up in Townsville? Really? Yeah. That yeah. just went away. Just recently. Yeah. Which knocked one? out. Yeah, he, he got involved in a pub fight. Right. Uh, and he got knocked out, and police are investigating, and I think cautioned both him and the guy who punched him. Right. Because apparently words were had before. Okay. It just... wasn't purely one sided. Okay. Well, he's just. Doing his bit for professional equality. Not only footballers can be in a pub fight, but even politicians. I don't think we need podcasters fighting. And if 
you guys have to put your hands up for, for that one. I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not, not up for that. Not my thing. Either. No. Okay, just on uh, rugby league before we move away from that. Um, so we have this situation with footballers who have been charged with offences, rape or sometimes domestic violence, and the Australian Rugby League has a policy which they've enforced which says if you're charged with something of that nature, then we can stop you from playing. You'll still be paid, but you can't actually go on the field and play. Stood down, as they say. stood down. So the Players Association said, well, we're not happy with that. And under their agreements, this went to arbitration. And after going through arbitration, the arbitrator said, nope, that's a fair enough policy. Um, And basically the reasoning behind it was that it saved the game millions of dollars in terms of sponsorship because sponsors are happy because they don't have people under this cloud running around with their logo on their chest and keeps things squeaky clean for them. So, uh, and they don't pull their sponsorship. So, um, so yeah, so the Rugby League Players Association appealed and they lost and that is now the law in terms of rugby league players. And interesting thing is it doesn't apply in the AFL. So they have not yet come to that sort of arrangement. So anyway, that's what the rugby league is up to in terms of forcing players to stand down. Uh, quickly on the Republic, another poll. And overall, uh, in terms of supporting the Republic, 48%, opposing the Republic, 28%, and unsure, 25%. That's a lot of people who don't know. I think because we don't know what model is going to replace it. Mm. Point and it's but, been roughly 20 years since the last yeah. referendum, so a whole generation has grown up since that, indeed. So, when it comes to the unsure group, uh, females 33% as opposed to males 16%, and still in the unsure group, it's predominantly the younger people that 18 to 34 year old age group. Shay, on behalf of females in the younger age group, why are you so unsure about a republic? Well, it's one of the few campaigns I actually remember as a kid Mm -hmm. and the campaign that um, the coalition ran was, if you don't know, vote no. Oh, okay. And um, look Mm. at that. That's what we got. We got no for a republic. So I think that it's just um, something that – not really going to explore, get information on until it seems more likely, possibly. Mm. And mm. if um, it's kind of I- ignorance is bliss, like why, why, why need to know? Mm. That's fair enough. It's been a while since it's been a discussion, so younger people wouldn't have heard the debate. But the, um, the referendum wasn't exactly run along party lines anyway, was it? Because Malcolm Turnbull famously was one of the leaders of the Republican movement and he was... A coalition parliamentarian. No, he was. He was in always parliament been in the wrong time, party. Was he? he no, was, I think he was. No, I think he, he wasn't, wasn't in parliament. Really? John Howard was. Yes. Was anti-republic. And, oh, I know Howard was. Yes. And did we have Paul Turnbull Keating? wasn't in the parliament at that stage. I don't think. See? I think he was a well-to-do man about town businessman yeah, who clearly was aligned with the Liberal Party, but I don't think he was in parliament. So, um, yeah. Um, 
There we go. Actually, Bronwyn made another good comment. Bronwyn's making good comments. Daylight savings finished, so Bronwyn didn't have to go to bed so she can stay (laughs) up for the podcast. And she said that one really good thing Jackie Lambie brings is her life experience. For example, I think Lambie's the only current politician to have been a Centrelink client. Mm. Like, that's a big thing. I think Anne Alley is another one. Oh, okay. Mm. But that sort of life experience is important when you've been on the receiving end of that. Mm. Okay. Um, the whole uh, patriarchy, well, the whole thing about the gender issue is still there, but this was an article from Crikey that I found interesting. I don't know that I agree with it entirely, but I hear the concept is um, from Crikey saying about this whole Brittany Higgins and the Parliament House sort of issue with treatment of women. For reasons I don't quite understand, progressives have allowed this to be portrayed as an example of patriarchal of patriarchy in general workplace culture. But there weren't any stories of Labor or Greens depravity emerging. If any were circulating, we can be sure that News Corp would have brought them to the fore. Bizarrely, this has now been generalised and Liberal women have been allowed to take a lead in the manner that depoliticises it. There may well be a problem with Parliament's workplace culture, but what has emerged is a problem of right-wing culture and of the Liberal Party in particular. The crisis is a measure of the defamation of personality and values within the Liberal movement. So he says every politician party attracts chances and weirdos. Liberals have now called time of it, time on it, but that's occurred only after there wasn't much choice. And he says here, um, this may result in the Liberal Party or the coalition bringing in gender quotas. And he says that if they do that, it will really be a significant philosophical change for the coalition to introduce gender quotas because they're so keen on uh, the market and freedom and and not having things imposed that to to submit to a gender quota would really be crossing over to a dark side that they haven't had to before. Surely Scotty's a believer in complementarianism as well. In what? Complementarianism? Yes, that men and women are complement each other. They have different roles in society. Right. And yep, the, yep. the man's role is to be a breadwinner and the woman's role is to be barefoot and pregnant. Yeah, well, at this moment, Morrison seems to think that men should be in Parliament and women should be at home. But <laughs> <laughs> That might be the case. But, but anyway... And what barefoot. You, anyway, so part A of the argument is <laughs> that largely it's been a conservative issue, the culprits in all this have been seemingly on the conservative side and not much has been made of that. It's just been painted as a general culture in Parliament rather than a culture of the Conservative Party. You don't see anything in it, Paul? I think it's absolute crap. Right. I mean, it's obvious that Crikey is a left-wing rag and they... You know, want to support the Labor Party and they want to take every opportunity to put shit on the coalition and, mm-hmm. and the leader of the coalition. So that's hardly surprising coming from Crikey. But mm-hmm. um, what about Julia mm-hmm. Banks? She was a Labor MP, wasn't she? Was she accused of No, she, after she left, she rounded on the Labor Party about their sexism. Didn't she? I don't, I don't know about her, but I know, I've, I've I know only, Emma Hazar is and uh, Kate Ellis is writing a book. 
about the sexism. Yeah, Kate Ellis. Yeah, she was a politics across the board. Labor minister. Mm. Yeah, but Kate Ellis was complaining about what liberal politicians were saying to her. Oh, so they were the ones that were going to push this story. They were the ones saying that she slept around and oh, and, and she was a liberal. And she was that's what she is okay. saying. Oh. So she's saying that, calling her a slut and stuff mm. across the room. And when she stopped, and so so the crikey argument is that so far all we're really hearing about is bad doings by the right. Yet the issue has been painted as one of of a culture of the entire house, rather than saying, "Hang on a minute." Seems to be all on one side of the house here. Well, I don't think point, Julia Banks was complaining about liberal staffers. Don't know. I haven't heard of Julia Banks. I've been following really? this. It's here, but in mm. a more concerted way than Julia yeah. Banks did a few years ago. It's mm. undermined. Mm. Um, uh, uh, I, um, I think what's interesting about this is this whole thing is um, – wouldn't you say Rupert Murdoch's trained rats have been ha- behaving very unusually, Paul? <laughs> They've been reporting scandal after scandal of the Liberal Party. They've been reporting the news. Everybody reports <laughs> scandal. <laughs> Who doesn't like scandal? Well, this is <laughs> what a, I mean. It's like if Rupert there's, really is there's an even-handedness in this. <laughs> is that what seem, you're that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it seems to be. Uh, yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter which newspaper article, everybody's covering these scandals. So mm. whether you're right wing or left wing. Mm. I guess the thing is there's been female journalists in the News Corp stable who have, mm. who have True, led the way. Yeah. Mm. Okay, the other thing, uh, just a bit of homework. We were talking about Bridget McKenzie last well, fortnight ago and I was trying to make a comparison between her and Roz Kelly. Oh, I was making... I was saying how standards don't seem to apply anymore and we got into this discussion about Ros Kelly and the comparison with Ros Kelly and the whiteboard back in the Hawke era. And it's a long time ago. Yeah, I I'm just trying to think. the specifics of that anymore. <laughs> yes. And, uh, oh, and, and basically, oh, the argument was, well, Senator McKenzie did resign. So what are you complaining about, Trevor? Like... It was a sports rort, Ros Kelly. She resigned. Bridget McKenzie, sports rort. She resigned. But the thing about McKenzie is she didn't resign because of the sports rort. She resigned because money was allocated to a club that she was a member of and a gun club. And under the ministerial standards, she was in breach of a written ministerial standard. Mm. So... The point was... There's a conflict of interest. And, and the point was it's a written ministerial standard. So where commonly my argument is that where we've been relying on unwritten rules of conduct and behaviour and, and historical sort of ways of dealing with things, that's been thrown out the window... My argument still stands because she actually ignored all the sports rort stuff and toughed it out. It was only when it was found that she was a part of a gun club that received money and there was a black letter law that said you're in breach of the ministerial standards, then she resigned. So so why didn't Morrison resign when his church got a grant for security cameras and lights and things around the church? Yeah, well, uh, 
He he would have said he wasn't the minister in charge of oh, that decision. Of course, yes, somebody yeah. else would have. Exactly. He would said he, he pulled himself away from that. So, mm. so anyway, my theory still stands. Okay. Right, we have a new patron. Thanks to Mr. T, who's in uh, patron via PayPal. Good on you, Mr. T. And because I'm so slack in revealing patrons' names, our tech guy Joe has organised for a scrolling bar to appear on the video of the names. So. Those of you who are watching the live stream would have seen things um, uh, scrolling across there. So thank you for that. And uh, were you going to put a QR code up? I was. I emailed it to you, but I haven't added it yet. Okay. We'll put up a QR code to give you a link straight to the Patreon account if you feel like it. That's appreciated. Andrew Lamming has been in the news. Not the most pleasant of fellows, it seems. (laughs) No. No, Careful and been getting away with it for yes. a long time. Yes. Mm. Be careful bending over, filling up a fridge if you're in a skirt and mm. he's around. I don't think she was wearing a skirt. You know, be careful I mean, bending over, and filling up a fridge. What I read was that her underwear was revealed above her right. shorts or something, right. you know, on her waist. Right. Okay. So you what, shouldn't be careful, invent be, details that are not what, there. While she was bending okay, over. Be careful bending over, filling up a fridge, because some creepy yeah, politician a, might take a photo of you. I'm not saying that was a great thing to do. I'm just saying that you have to be a little bit careful not to but, but, but did embroider I, the, the, the incident with your own details, Trevor. But, but I didn't paint it worse than what it It actually sounds no, worse you now. Said she was mm. wearing a skirt. In other words, you know, he was taking a photo of her knickers. And that's not what I read in the report. But she, so her knickers were showing above her yeah, the, pants. Yeah, the waistband of her knickers. Okay. In other I words, not her crotch. I, I don't think I've I've painted a picture that was any worse than what's actually happened. Then, so forgive me, dear listener. Mm. But um, it's a pretty he's a pretty creepy guy. Pretty I agree. creepy incident. However, you paint it. So anyway, turns out he was one of the guys behind the. Chaplaincy, um, the instigation of school chaplaincy. Julie Bishop, Craig Hunt, Andrew Lamming, David Fawcett and Louise Marcus were the ones who proposed the pilot chaplaincy program. So there, uh, that's one of his claims to fame. And this bit I didn't know was that Queensland Premier Peter Beattie announced $3 million for chaplains but he got beaten to it by Howard, who then announced $90 million for the school chaplaincy program. Um, as Prime Minister, Rudd added another $42 million to the 90 from Howard. And then when Gillard came along, she raised it to 222 So I had what no idea. What beloved Labor Party? I, I, had, I was not aware of how much the Rudd and Gillard governments really? had bolstered it in monetary terms. But I knew that... Gillard had opened it up to non-religious people. Yes, and then Abbott... That's true. That. In her defence, she had opened it to non-religious, but we don't want any... In her defence. <laughs> in her defence. That is indefensible, the amount of money that she wanted to give to the chaplaincy program. I just mm. think that's indefensible. Well, particularly for a woman who is not religious and it, should be aware of the harm that religion does. In but, but hang on, you're not listening. That she opened it up to non-religious. 
Yeah, I'm aware so, of that. So but she in, increased the funding. Yeah, but and in her defence, as a counterpoint to the increase, okay, I wish you hadn't given them any money, but okay, mm. she was thinking there'll be some secular chaplains mm. in there. So in her yeah. defence, okay. But um, so there we go. We can uh, rail against John Howard for starting the whole thing, but certainly Rudd and Gillard didn't help, and of course then. Abbott came along and said, no, it's That's not be enough. Just, yes, it, let's give them more. Well, and more important, and just as importantly said, uh, by the way, it's now just for religious people. That's right. Yeah. No secular so-called chaplains or... Yeah. Um, what do they call them? You know, because they keep, in, they keep telling us that the chaplains are not there to, to preach. They're there to... Offer guidance and, you know, a sympathetic ear to troubled youth and all that sort of stuff. But trained, you know, psychologists or guidance counsellors would have been much better for kids, I would think. Right. Mm. Um, Yeah. So, uh, okay, so that's – that is the chaplaincy program and quick mention of Scientology. There's been a couple of articles. There's links here to it basically saying what an extraordinary amount of money the Church of Scientology has accumulated in Australia, and it seems that... Allegedly. Allegedly. And it seems that our tax laws are some of the most generous in relation to religious bodies or pseudo-religious bodies in the world, and we're something of a bit of a religious tax haven here, in the. it seems, for... The Church of Scientology. So the article is basically saying that other countries in the Scientology world are funneling money to Australia because it's a good place to keep money. <laughs> That's how how generous we are to Scientologists. So that's a sad indictment on our system. And there's an article there with links to it. And one of the things is that I think in the UK, for example, they don't even have charitable status. So um, it's uh, interesting. Uh, from what I read, uh, they didn't have charitable status in the US either, mm-hmm. and they embarked on a huge program of suing the IRS mm. until the IRS finally gave in. Mm. Yep, yep. And that was, I think, Leah Remini's book mm. that alleged that. Yep. So, so in are US churches ta- always tax exempt? Um, if they get whatever filing from the IRS, they have to be granted. You would assume they would all apply for it. Yes. Wouldn't you? And the IRS had either taken it away or never granted it. And they basically just kept suing them mm. until they were snowed under paperwork. It might be a little bit like the UK system. So in Australia, charities, including religions, have to pass a public benefit test, but it's automatically presumed that religion is for a public benefit. Whereas in the UK, um, it has no presumption about public benefit for religion. So as a religion, you have to prove you're doing charitable works and prove what you're doing with your money. So in the UK, Scientology has not passed the public benefit test and is not a charity. Seriously? Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's all here in this article. And is that how you would sort it out? Yeah, that's, that's how, you, how would, you, would, you would fix it in Australia yeah. is you would say just because you're a religion 
does not mean, mean a public, public benefit. benefit. You have to show us what you're doing with the money. Mm. And another group will have problems with that, with that is the Mormons. Like the Mormons yes. collect a lot of money, mm. but you don't see them up to any charitable yeah. work either. So there'll be another one who uh, has a problem with that. Mm. So in terms of assets per member, the Catholic Church in Australia has assets of about $5,600 per Catholic member. 5,600, and Scientologists have 102,000 for Scientologists. They've got a lot. Um, there we go. So a couple of stories there about Scientology and um, just a little bit of history about it. That campaigning by the Truth newspaper in Victoria and the medical establishment led to a lengthy inquiry in the mid-60s and its report about Scientology was scathing. It was described as evil, and its practice as a serious threat to the community, medically, morally, and socially. And its adherents sadly deluded and often mentally ill. The report said in the sixties, mm-hmm. fallout was huge. Scientology was banned in Victoria, for the first place in the world, and later in South Australia and Western Australia. Within a few decades, however. Australia swung entirely the other way and we had the famous court case where it went to the High Court and the High Court had a very generous interpretation of religion and said that, quote, charlatanism is a necessary price of religious freedom and a lack of sincerity or integrity from a religious leader was not incompatible with the religious character of the beliefs and practices. Go Church of Satan. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So... It's a terrible precedent that Australia has set. There we go. A little bit of history on Scientology. And there's a, there's a law to change um, in terms of the charity laws and public benefit. That's an easy one. Mm. Right. Um, hello, James. The chat room has just joined us. Now, uh, Amanda Stoker, um, she's now kind of in charge of the Religious Freedom Bill and getting that along Parliament with sort of Christian Porter out of the scene, Michaelia Cash, new Attorney General. She's the assistant, Amanda Stoker. She loves the idea of Religious Freedom Bill. And she's a fanatic and she's very smart. She's a really dangerous woman, mm. Amanda Stoker. Um, she worries me a lot. So, Paul, da- you wrote... Dangerous? You? Why is she dangerous? Because her views are opposite to mine. <laughs> and... She wants to implement things that will be harmful for our society. And she's smart enough and hardworking enough to convince to people to get it done. <laughs> okay. That's why I think she's dangerous. All yes. Right. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, have you heard about these satanic shoes <laughs> that have been in the news? Yes. So um, I don't even know who Lil Nas X is. He's a rapper who has recently come out and apparently a lot of what he's doing is rebelling against the shame that he felt for being gay raised in a very Christian right. society. So he's got a grudge and he's working on it. It's okay. <laughs> Good on him. So he brought out a satanic shoe where basically they grab Nike shoes and colour them up and insert some blood into like the gel area of the shoe. Is that real or was he just saying that? No, it was real. Real blood? Yeah, apparently they just got a bunch of the workers together and just 
extracted blood, and like there's only one or two drops in there, but it's got blood in each shoe, mm. and selling them for a fortune. And, and Nike said, well, Nike, that's, that, that's, they weren't happy. Were no, they? well, you can't just take our shoe no. and use our and associate us with your mm. activity. So they've taken him to court to try and stop him. Meanwhile, though, some other company had done had produced a Jesus shoe. <laughs> I don't know what was in the Jesus shoe, whether it had the body of Christ, perhaps. Maybe they'd taken a Eucharist. And a wafer. Perhaps. And just put a wafer in the shoe. <laughs> or maybe. And some, and some wine. Or maybe they'd taken some wine and transformed it into the blood of Christ and then put that in the Jesus shoe. Oh, that is possible. Yes. Um, but Nike said, Mike didn't complain about a Jesus shoe, but now they're complaining about a Satan shoe, saying... That looks like clear That's discrimination. That's bigotry, isn't That's it? discrimination. Yes. Treating people differently because of their religion. Mm-hmm. So the satanic uh, news at Temple of Satan said, well, if that happened in Australia, the new proposed religious discrimination bill that Amanda Stoker is trying to bring in would give um, this guy, Lil Nas X, the opportunity to continue what he's doing, saying it would be um, discrimination not to allow him to when they've allowed a Jesus shoot. I, I don't know about that because mm. Nike would obviously claim that, you know, they didn't produce the shoe and it's not, not authorised and they feel it will bring their good name into disrepute. Mm. So I think they'd still have a case, wouldn't they? Look, I wouldn't want to have a lot of money riding on it. But mm. uh, anyway, it's just making the point if you can have these privileges, they can apply everywhere. And, oh, look... There's been a lot of talk about Senator O'Neill on the Labor side getting very pally-pally with Senator Stoker about Labor Party policies that might actually be in favour of a religious discrimination bill and it unfortunately will not surprise me in the least if the Federal Labor Party rolls over and agrees to whatever Amanda Stoker wants with this bill. Because... Mm. They'll Senator roll Ryan. over like a puppy and ask yeah. Amanda to scratch their tummy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wouldn't surprise me in the least. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Look out for that. Mm. Mm. Apparently she wasn't quite as conservative in her early days. She was more of a libertarian, Amanda Stoker. Mm. And it was only in sort of building up her base getting pre-selection that she took on these sort of conservative Christian views more than she had before. Yeah. yeah. You have to be a little bit careful with this term libertarian because mm. it doesn't have a really clearly, a clear definition, you know what I mean? Mm. I mean, uh, these uh, political compasses that, we, that mm. we all do for fun around election time, mm. I did one just recently mm. that somebody had referred to on my... Facebook page. So I did it just for fun. And I came out exactly as left as the Greens. No surprise there. And a little bit further south on the libertarian uh, spectrum than the Greens. Only a little? Well, the Greens were too. You know what I mean? The Greens were heading in the same direction as me. I was just further along than they were. That's no surprise. (laughs) That does not surprise me in the least. It surprises me. I would have thought the Greens would be heading in the opposite direction. You, you the- are in total agreement with the Greens, except when it comes to identity politics. I'm not in total agreement with the Greens on well, everything. You're in I'm close sorry. agreement with the Greens. You, you're, it's the woke 
woke talk on identity issues. A bit more than that, 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 uh, um, that is your big difference with the Greens. Well, that's so. that's almost their total platform these days. But right. um, actually, th- they're thinking of a wealth tax. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And I think, Paul, that's unfair. But the opposite say, of li- libertarian mm. is authoritarian, right? But hang on, can we just backtrack one minute? I think mm-hmm. it's very fair, unfair to say that's their total policy is identitarian identity 90%. issues. I think that's very unfair. Ninety yeah. percent. Have you looked at their policy platforms, Paul? Uh, I have. A few and ninety percent are on identity. I, I'm exaggerating. Okay. I'm exaggerating. There we go. I just couldn't help. I'm playing with you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, they're pretty heavily into it. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, according to this article. Amanda Staker was kind of more of a libertarian, which I take to be free market. So she's just like me. Low government intervention, uh, freedom of the individual to do pretty much whatever they like as much as Mm. possible. That's sort of libertarian. Mm. Anyway, she's certainly uh, adopted a lot of conservative Christian views and it's worked for her so far. Mm. Okay. Um, Paul, I think I got this one from you. American woke culture in French life. Did you? Yes. In Paris, there was a call to ban white people in France from talking about racism, which has split the nation and has triggered indignation on the the rise of... Oh, maybe it didn't come from you then. I don't read the Courier Mail. Okay. I was thinking of you That's when I saw it. That's one that you read, isn't I probably, it? I probably looked at this and thought, well, Paul will like this one. Okay, yeah. fair enough. So, a- André Pulver, a left-wing deputy mayor of Paris and former TV news presenter, said white people should be asked to keep quiet and be silent spectators if they were present at a meeting of black and ethnic minority people discussing discrimination. Amazing. Mm. I think we can all What's talk. What's so amazing? When you ask the people experiencing discrimination about their discrimination, what is so outrageous about that? White people are never discriminated against? I'm just saying that I think a call to ban white people from talking is a bit... That's not what he said. Well, well, he said cr- cr- they were asked to keep quiet and be silent spectators if they're present at a meeting of black and ethnic minority people. Okay, they were allowed to attend. They're allowed well, to attend. Actually, they were banned from talking. And they're asked, not yeah, banned. Yeah. Okay. But he should. said should. Yeah. White people should be asked to keep quiet. In other mm. words, he, th- he strongly believes they shouldn't make any noise. Mm. When discussing discrimination that black people are experiencing, black and ethnic minority people are experiencing. Mm. I think they should be able to talk. <laughs> Surely. <laughs> I think they should be able to talk about a topic. I think it's a bit much to say, all you white people over there, shush, shush, and just listen to us. It's like, discrimination. It's, it's, it's racist. It's, it's just not going to solve. It, that is not going to win people over. If you say to people, you're not allowed to talk and you just have to listen to us and we're not going to let you convert. That's, people might say, oh, well, that's what you did to us for 50 years. But that's not how you solve <laughs> an issue. Like, that's right. You could say, well, that's, that was bad then, and that doesn't mean fixing it means you do the same to somebody else. Like mm. if you say to people, you do not have status to engage in this, well, you just basically signed a death warrant for reaching agreement on things 
in a willing, participatory manner yeah. when you just disenfranchise people. Now, you might say they're privileged and they're all-powerful and all the rest mm. of it, but you're not going to win over hearts and minds by saying to That's people, right. in your corner, shut up while we have a we'll tell you what we're experiencing. By all means, let them the, speak, let them first, speak and, give their, and give their two cents worth or whatever, but don't say to other people, well, you're just not entitled to talk I, on this topic I because came you're across the wrong colour. another similar uh, mm. example Mm. On a um, a black atheist mm. page on Facebook that mm. I look at sometimes, and they put up a a um, a photo of a, an African American man standing in front of his church, and he was the preacher, and he had put up a sign advising black people not to go to churches where there were white people. In other words. He, he was saying black people should only go to blacks-only churches mm. Mm. Um, on the grounds that, you know, white people have been so mean to black people for so long that uh, they don't deserve black people's company. Or, right. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But it's, it's not how you solve it's not helpful. problems. No. Um, just in the chat room, Liam says, probably depends on how much they were talking. If it was 80% white people, then they'd probably have a point. Eric says... I think it depends on the contribution they want to make, Trevor. A lot of people get involved in conversations for no other reason than to stifle it. But sure, if somebody is not conversing in good faith and is trying to dominate mm. and not allow proper discourse, well, that's not right. But, but that's got nothing to do but, with their skin colour. But, but, but it, if that's your concern, then you should be saying, hey, we want everyone to have a go and everybody to have their peace, say their bit, and we need to talk about this properly. Not say, all oh, you whiteys over there, sit down and shut up. That just isn't going to work. It but- might feel good <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it might get it off your chest and you might be great to just let loose. But if you're actually trying to achieve a workable consensus where, of everybody, am I talking over the top of you now, Sharon? No, no. I see your point. Right. Yeah, but... Yeah, I'm just like looking for the context of of this. You want to know the pretext? Whole thing. The pretext. You want the pretext? The context. The context. Because frankly, like, mm. what can white people um, contribute to a lived experience of a black person discussing discrimination? How about? Can't we let the black person discuss their experience of discrimination, and perhaps the white person will then have something to add? Yeah, but it just seems saying, like we're not saying that white people have to speak first. It's a, sure, the black person can speak first. No problem. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> but at least let the white person speak afterwards. And, and maybe the yes. white person has lived in some other country where they've experienced racism themselves. Possibly. Possibly. So, so we they don't do have, have those... something to contribute. Yes. Mm. Mm. And it's yes. not only about lived experience. People bring, you know, the entirety of their life experience, which is not only lived experience, it's also things they've read. And, and prejudice. But, All kinds of yeah. stuff. And, for example, the black people might say, oh, I've just experienced this discrimination because of this hardship and that hardship and this hardship and that hardship. And the poor white working class trailer trash might say, I've got some news for you. I've experienced exactly the same thing. We have a shared experience. Isn't that interesting? Shut up, white. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Like, it's just a nonsense to say, 
don't speak because it's, it's to say I can't learn anything from a yeah. white person. And even if it is a wealthy, well-to-do person who's had all the white privilege in the world and has had, had a single bit of discrimination ever against them, they might say, well, what's your solution? And let me think about whether I see problems with your solution in actually implementing it because mm. of my experience. Like it's just to say to somebody, don't talk. Mm. We're, just, al- we're also seeing um, this, my lived experience is more important than education. Mm. Where, you know, uh, my lived experience, my child had autism a week after they had a vaccination. Mm. Never mind the 20 years of epidemiology you've done that proves that it's not true. My lived experience says that it is true and therefore... The, the white guy in the corner told to shut up might be a sociologist with 35 years' experience in the field. Exactly. He might have a lot of things to say, yeah. Mm. I, I think, yes, there are times when it's valuable to shut up and listen. Of course. But, but you've got to have a turn eventually yourself, yeah. Anyway, might, bits might have been lost in translation. Um, French President Emmanuel Macron has attacked social science theories imported from the US. He said... It's harmful for national unity in opposing French values. And um, this is the... Uh, I'll move on. So there we go. Now, on the same topic, is the UK a racist society? Paul, I got this one from you. Mm. So... Uh, well, because- it's about a, the UK government commissioned a, an inquiry. Mm. Because of all the, you know, the events of the last 12 months, you know, Black Lives Matter and... Yes. Other things. And so the UK government, in response to accusations that the United Kingdom was a systemically racist country, they got a bunch of people together to find out if it was true and they came back and said, no. Pretty much there's no systemic racism. They they didn't say there was no racism in, you know, the British population. Obviously, every population... Mm has a certain number of people who harbour racist attitudes. Mm. But what they did find was there, were no, there was no evidence of systemic racism. And uh, in, it was interesting because, um, you know, people sometimes portray it as white versus everybody else. But what they found was that the children of um, non-white immigrants uh, had different... There were differences between ethnicities. For example, the children of, um, like, Jamaican or West Indian um, immigrants Mm. uh, fare less well than the average white school child, whereas Africans... But but then the average white child... They're less well than virtually all the other ethnic yes, minorities. Exactly. Yeah. And also, in um, Indian uh, immigrants tend to have a higher average income than Pakistani, for mm. example. Mm. You know, so there are all kinds of disparities yes. among various it's, it's, non-white communities. It's, it's very interesting report. So there's a link to the article from the BBC, a link to the report, and basically the re- Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities said family structure and social class had a bigger impact Mm. than race on how people's lives turned out. It said children from minority ethnic communities did as well or better than white pupils, Mm. but overt racism remained particularly online. So there's still racism, people abusing people, nasty comments made online, and but in terms of systemic 
holding back of people um, from progressing in society, there wasn't the systemic mm. uh, incident that people were saying. Don't you think social media is a bit of an amplifier in a sense, isn't it? Yes. And it's not necessarily representative of the mm. community as a whole, I wouldn't think. Interesting thing here, the pay gap between all ethnic minorities and the white majority population had shrunk to 2.3% overall and was barely significant for employees under 30. Okay. Um, uh, while there are impediments and disparities that do exist, they were varied and ironically very few of them are directly to do with racism. The report added that evidence had found that factors such as geography, family influence, socioeconomic background, culture and religion had more significant impact on life chances than the existence of racism. Said, um, it's, yeah. And, Tony uh, Sewell. Yeah, and there's a picture of Tony Sewell, the chairman of the group who did it, mm. and it's an interesting report, I think. So I, I'm particularly interested in the bit where it's really talking about class and socioeconomic status. My UK friends mm. are very identitarian and mm. they were poo-pooing this report. Of course. And one wonders whether that's just, um, what do they call it now, pre-bias. Did they, did they mm. actually explicitly say that? This report is poo-poo. Well, I'll tell you what no, they said. Explicitly <laughs> said that they said well, some they, pretty they strong made, things. No, they made some disparaging jokes about the report. Here we go. So but they don't think they it's jokes? true. Or? They don't believe it. No. So they think there is systemic racism still alive Correct. and well yeah. in England. Significant number of people disagree. So mm. Professor Ken Kehendi Andrews, a professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University, said, "It's complete nonsense. It goes in the face of all the." actual existing evidence. And a Dr. Halima Begum, chief executive of the Runnymede Trust, a race equality think tank, said she felt deeply, massively let down by the report. So there were other groups who said the report's a BS. Um, Which they would. It's hardly surprising <laughs> that they would say that. So your friend, Brendan O'Neill from Spiked, Said, I wish you were my friend. Said that, well, of course those groups who are in the business of complaining about racism will complain about a government report that says there is none because it's directly going to affect their business that they're in. So that was his theory. Similar thing happens in the United mm. States with um, African-American intellectuals mm. Who don't, you know, follow the standard, um, you know, Black Lives Matter rhetoric, mm. and they get accused of being race traitors and coconuts and all sorts of things too. Yeah, I'm just trying to find the qualifications of the head of this. The interesting thing was um, because the Asians are doing so well in American life. They're now being reclassed as white. Yeah, white mm. adjacent yes. is the term mm -hmm. they use. <laughs> mm. Because they were um, taking mm. a, a overly mis yeah non-proportional number of college seats. Yep. Yep. So it's a 258-page report. It does make 24 recommendations. So 
read that at your leisure and decide whether the people who wrote the report are full of shit and have written something that's completely off beam and they've got it completely wrong, presumably because they're either stupid or because they're motivated by money by something else. Why money? So, or, or something. Because why? Just often with these reports, you so, do kind of follow the money. Like even when it's peer-reviewed, mm. who's it peer-reviewed? You know, unconscious yeah. biases mm. and all sorts of interesting things go into these types of reports. Um, yeah. Um, but there's – I can't see why we're opposing this report or why people would poo-poo this report. But The people who poo-pooed it are the people who claim that the United Kingdom is a thoroughly, still, thoroughly yeah. racist – Country, mm. Mm. but on and, what and, grounds? And, and you see, I think those people they would say it is. I, I think those people would have a, a an experience where they're working in community centres and they're dealing, say, with black people all the time in a particular suburb, area of London or whatever. Poor black people coming in with lack of opportunity, and and they're helping them out. And you could be in a position where all you see all day is just black people with difficulties, and you would go. There's a problem of racism in this country because everybody I see is black and disadvantaged and the system seems to be stacked against them. But if they went to some northern town or some other area of uh, industrial old uh, UK where, I don't know, there could be a, a working class white example of that that they're just not familiar with. So I could I could understand people who work in a sector that deals with cultural minority groups and sees their problems, sees things through that prism and doesn't recognise that, hang on a minute, this just happened to other people as well um, and I just don't see it because I'm in this sector. I'm in the helping black people sector. Mm. Mm. I'm not in the other sector. It's quite possible people could see that and and haven't taken an overall view of, hey, hang on a minute, it's more than race, it's socioeconomic, it's other factors that apply irrespective of the skin colour. I can see they could have that honestly held opinion and be wrong. I don't know that there's money in it. I don't know why a government-appointed body would make a 258-page there, report. You that, will recall, we used we, we you and I, Trevor, read some books so. by a man called Malik. Mm. Is it Malik? Kenan Malik. Kenan Malik. Mm. And he made the point that in the 19, would it have been 1970s or 80s or 90s in the United Kingdom, the government was throwing money at community groups, um, ethnic minority community groups in, in, in a way of yes. you know, trying to curry favour or, or look as if they were addressing certain problems. Well, well I saw it as an as a easy manner of delivering mm. support to groups via the community leaders. So-called leaders, Who yeah. often were religious Usually, leaders. Yes, particularly in yes. the ethnic minorities. They were often religious leaders. Yeah, yes. But uh, in, in that sense, I guess there's there's money in claiming that there is systemic racism, you know, because then they, they would claim that they're still mm. terribly oppressed mm. and they need more government mm. money to be thrown mm. at them. So in a, in a report where it says the Chinese are evil and... They're doing all sorts of stuff in the South China Sea and we need to beef up our defence response to that. By all means, look at, did the person write that report in any way involved in the arms industry? In which case, you can see a connection and say, 
I'm going to take what they say with a grain of salt because there's clear money in potentially involved here. Yes. I don't see the same flow of money as a result of a report like this, but somebody well, else Well, hasn't he saved money? Um, because basically they don't have to do anything. No. Because they don't have no, systemic... No, no, he's saying no, it's a socioeconomic problem. Oh, sorry. So you address the money based on class okay. rather than race. So he hasn't, I don't think, said cut money and funding to no. these groups. He's just said the problem is not the race, it's and the class. as for his background, mm. yes, he is a child of Jamaican migrants. Mm. Uh, he was a teacher. He taught in Jamaica. Mm. And he is a consultant, an education consultant. Mm. So he has uh, been involved in reforming London schools. Presumably he didn't do it alone. There was a bunch of people oh, no, on no, the panel. Absolutely. Yeah, but- yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. If his report was true and what he's describing is true, it doesn't surprise me that there would be a bunch of people who would say, I disagree, I think it's shit, and it was way off beam, even mm. if it was true. It's mm. human nature. It doesn't surprise me. Mm. So, And yeah. it does um, seem like a sensible mm. report. Mm. Like I don't actually really object to it. Mm. Anyway, there's a lot to read there if you're interested, dear listener. Um there's links to it there. So, um, what is okay? We've got here Liam. Uh, Liam McMahon says it wouldn't be great. It wouldn't be great to release a report saying that you have institutional racism. That would mean you would have to do something about it. Not saying that I don't believe the conclusions of the report. Just saying there is a basis for not wanting to declare as the country's government that you're systematically racist. Well, the counter argument to that Liam is if he's saying it's not a racist problem, but it's a a um, a problem of class and privilege due to money and other circumstance, that doesn't absolve the government from doing something about it. So he's still saying there's a problem, it's just not the problem everyone thinks it is. Mm. He hasn't said there's no inequality. He said there's a problem, but it's look over here, not over here. All right. And it's not just about whites and non-whites. Yeah. Mm. That was an interesting report. Mm. Mm. And timely too. Mm. How are we going for time? Eight fifty-two. Eight minutes. Land and hard bottom. We will. <laughs> we will fulfil another eight minutes to keep Shay from being suspended above <laughs> the shark tank. <laughs> Let's talk about bias and the ABC. Yay! Mm. <laughs> so, uh, Paul, did I, I send I, you this one? I think I just saw you commenting on it. I think Possibly. maybe you. Um, I it's probably from the, posted something yeah, about it. Yeah, I think you did. Page. And it was an article from The Spectator that basically said, uh, if the ABC is so great, why aren't people watching it? Mm. Uh, why do people say that they wouldn't pay much money for it? Mm. And why do people say it is left-wing biased? Uh, well, clearly it is left-wing biased. It was the three things from the article. So I'll just deal with the bias one. So you've got a friend on your can I mention his name? Um, is I, it, I don't Brian. Know. Brian. Mm. We'll just say Brian. He's an academic. Right. Okay. Did you know? No. Uh, no. Oh, yes. He says it here. He teaches politics or something. Mm-hmm. First year politics. Yep. Yeah. On, I think or he something. works online. Right. 
but um, it's for a university in Victoria, I think he works for. I won't name the university. He teaches a first-year unit called Australian Politics. Yes. Yeah. And he often comments on American politics when there's an election too. He seems to have a um, particular interest in American politics. Right. Okay. Um, He says, contrary to popular belief, Australia does not have a major left party. Labor actually sits on the right of the political spectrum. The ABC presents its news without general bias and positions itself in the dead centre of the political debate. But with Labor to the right of centre, it's closer to the centre than the coalition, which explains why many people think the ABC is more aligned with Labor because it is to the extent that because it is to the extent that Labor is closer to the centre than the coalition. So that was his argument. Uh, incidentally, he says the US Democratic Party is to the right of our Conservative Party. I think it's true there. So uh, he, I guess, is saying ABC is dead centre. It's not biased. And uh, I know you disagree. I with disagree. What, yes, you disagree. And I thought I'd do a bit of Googling around and see what stuff is out there. And a bit of it's old. So... I came across a petition where this person was saying that wanting to hold the ABC accountable for providing a balanced diversity of views, and it was talking about the ABC's The Drum. And again, it's old, it's back in 2011, 2012, and they said that of the nine think tanks represented on the ABC's The Drum during that 12-month period, the Institute of Public Affairs took 39 guest spots out of 93, so that was 42% just for the Institute of Public Affairs. And then it lists there a bunch of other think tanks that appeared on the drum, and in the end comes up to a figure of the conservative think tanks were 66%, the progressives were 29%, and independents 5%. So basically... That little study said that if you're looking at just pure think tank numbers invited onto the drum... It's not really a good guide to the drum, though, because the number of Mm. people who, Mm. you know, appear Mm. on the panels from Mm. think tanks is Mm. a pretty small number. Mm. Anyway, when it comes Uh, to think tanks... The vast majority of the people Mm. on the panels are not from think tanks, Mm. and the vast majority are clearly left or... You know, centre-left, mm. I think it's safe to say. They do have the token conservative on occasionally, mm. I've noticed. But. <laughs> that was the only study I could find that actually attempted to do some numbers on that. That was with the drum. But then on Q&A, this is a report from 2015 done by Ray Martin and Sean Brown. I'm assuming the Ray Martin is the Ray Martin of... TV of fame. 60 minutes sort of mm. fame. I saw him so, in a restaurant once. Right. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> Did you go and introduce yourself? Uh, I should have. Didn't get his autograph either. Mm. Uh, So this is a 2015 report where they looked at 23 programs of Q&A. Do you think Q&A is biased? Uh, Religiously, yes. Q&A is just a rabble. Mm. (laughs) Okay, rather than biased, it's just a biased. Yeah. Okay, then I won't go through it. I mean, you used to. You didn't like the original. um, I didn't like Tony Jones. No, I can't. I've never liked it. Because it's a fatally flawed uh, system where you've got any number of people asking questions mm. and then a quick soundbite from a bunch yeah. of people. You can't get into the deep 
philosophical, into the woods like we get on this podcast. I agree with you. The format is flawed. But I thought Tony Jones did a better job of moderating than the current moderator. Mm. So uh, in the show notes, dear listener, you can find a whole bunch of tables where they looked at representation on the Q&A panel in a 12-month period and you certainly couldn't say that it was biased to the Labor or the left after running through all of the... Uh, numbers that they picked up there. So, mm. so do you, have, mm. do you watch the drum? No, no, no. Joe, no, none of you watch the drum. I used to watch it. <laughs> I can't. I can hardly bring myself to watch it these days, but I do occasionally. And it's it's clearly uh, I, I don't know if left wing is the right term, but it's clearly not conservative. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I just find it too annoying to watch. It's, oh, it's so very fluffy and very, very annoying. I agree. Mm. Um, I don't really want to. Uh, what's, oh, actually, just yes, sporting boycotts is an interesting one. So baseball in America. So who would have thought that Major League Baseball would make a strong political statement? So the Major League Baseball has pulled. It's 13th of July All-Star Game and the 2021 draft from Atlanta. They're not going to hold it in that city anymore because of changes to Georgia's voting laws. So as many people see, those changes are disproportionately affecting the black and minority communities. So Major League Baseball has said, you bunch of fuckers. We're not going to have the major. We're not going to have the they All Star Game in your city. Use such profane language. <laughs> that's an interesting. That's an interesting event, where they've said, uh, "Did your poor behaviour when it comes to democracy?" I was surprised by this too. And, and it's not the first time, though, isn't it? For, no. base, for baseball, I don't know about it, it, for baseball. I know that certain sporting events were cancelled mm-hmm. because of the whole bathroom builds. Two, three years ago. The what? The fact... Uh, they were having a bathroom built. No, no, no. Trans women weren't allowed to use women's toilets in America. Right. A whole bunch of cities passed laws or it was Alabama. Right. Can't remember. Okay. And um, so major sporting franchises said we're not going. Basically. Okay. Well, here's another one. Yep. Uh, so that's interesting because uh, baseball is, is sort of a, a rich white man's game. In America, so it's just interesting that they took a view like that. You wouldn't have expected that sport to get involved in that sort of thing. They would have a fair number of black Com- players in baseball, wouldn't they? Compared to other sports, it's quite low on the scale. Really? Uh, let me just see here, because it actually gives the it does say eight percent. Yeah, it did say it there somewhere. Um, if you can find it for me, Joe. Yeah, yeah most MLB owners are conservative in their politics. Yep. Black players in MLB account for only 8% of team rosters. 8%. It's quite low. Mm. Okay, so that's that. And we've the next question will come up is this, uh, Winter Olympics in China. And there's talk now about who is going to boycott the Winter Olympics mm-hmm. and in response to their human rights record. Paul, have you got any thoughts on boycotting Winter Olympics in China based on... Human rights. I haven't really given it any thought, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, How about you guys? 
I remember just, the Soviet Olympics being boycotted mm. back in the 80s, was it? Mm. By the United States? And Australia. Well, Australia made it difficult. There's, there's a number of countries that yeah. boycotted. Because mm. the, the Soviets boycotted the Los Angeles Olympics, mm. the next one after. And I think, I think they created a category for sort of people who had, if your country didn't go and you wanted to attend anyway and you could afford to get there, you could... You could, uh, okay. you could play for or represent an unaligned country. That was more country. recent, wasn't it? And Russian athletes were allowed to compete after that mm. um, drug scandal at Sochi, wasn't it? Oh. You remember know. at Sochi where they had the Winter Olympics in Russia mm. and it was discovered that the Russian officials had been tampering with the blood samples. Mm. And so the whole Russian team was banned at the following Winter Olympics but individual Russian athletes were allowed to compete if they could sort of demonstrate that they were clean. Mm, don't know about that. But anyway, I think it could be interesting over the next little while where they're considering whether to... Um, mm. They'll have to yeah. pull Japan off first, COVID-free, and, and manage all that before we even consider it, don't we? Mm. Yeah, it's going to be complicated, isn't it? <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, but I think people are getting into a mood to against China. Mm. So it wouldn't it's surprise building, me. Yeah, mm. it's building. Okay, well, I reckon that nine oh three, the shark <laughs> tank is closed. <laughs> <laughs> You're safe for another week, Shay. Indeed. Mm. Thank you. Thanks in the chat room. There were good comments throughout there. Uh, nice to be back. Um, the rest of Australia has joined us in terms of a time frame. So uh, Bronwyn and others in Back southern in the states are, uh, can go to bed, at, at, can listen to the program, mm. watch it, and go to bed at a good hour. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next week. Talk to you then. Good night. Bye, everyone. And it's a good night from him. The U.S. basically has the lowest unemployment rate ever. What can we really do to help solve inequality over time, beyond taxes. Poultry workers in the richest country in the world, the United States, one woman we work with there, told us that she and her co-workers have to wear diapers to work because they are not allowed toilet breaks. This is in the richest country in the world. Those are the jobs we are being told about, that globalization is bringing jobs. The quality of the jobs matter. It matters. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from 
a dollar fifty Australian to I think ten dollars and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.